0: Welcome to episode 95 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the Associate Editor at the magazine, and today we're going to be talking about theatre and looking at some of the more interesting and innovative plays on around Christmas. Of course, pantomime aside, there are almost always wonderful productions of A Christmas Carol, certainly in London, and this year is no exception. Owen Teal, known for playing Sir Alistair Thorne in Game of Thrones, plays Scrooge at the Old Vic, and Ade Edmondson, who made his name in the 80s in the comic strip and as the punk in The Young Ones is taking on the role for the RSC. I had the pleasure of working with Adrian Edmondson all those decades ago when he was game enough to take part in some of the pop videos I worked on. So I'm really looking forward to see him in the role of Ebenezer. But alongside those traditional seasonal offerings, what caught our eye was a couple of really interesting, innovative plays and one in a very different location to what you'd expect.
0: Yes, it's within the National Gallery, no less. For the first time, the National Gallery is staging a play cleverly called A Picture-Perfect Christmas. It's a new immersive play based on the old Dutch master painting, A Winter Scene with Skaters Near a Castle, painted by Avercamp in the 17th century. The painting has been transformed into a Christmas show for all the family by Boo Productions, an award-winning company specialising in immersive events. I'm all for this kind of thing, museums branching out. Here to tell us all about the show is the show's director, who's also an actor and a trained dancer, Francesca Reed.
2: Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Trained dancer, I haven't uh, danced for a little while so it's exciting to hear that accolade mentioned.
1: Well I did notice you a trained dancer, it's lovely to have you. We're also delighted to welcome Claire Arouche who is Head of Hospitality and Events at the National Gallery. Good morning Claire. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Well it's great to have you both here to talk about this exciting new idea. We were also very interested in what the Globe is doing this winter. I've seen many a magical Christmas performance there, memorably an adaptation of Hans Christian Andersen's Little Match Girl. And this year, they're staging another one of his tales, The Fir Tree in the Open Air, complete with puppets, carol singing, and tree decorating. It's being directed by the Globe's artistic director, Michelle Terry, and it's written by the writer in residence, Hannah Khalil. And we're delighted that Hannah is also with us today. Hello, Hannah.
3: Hello, thanks so much for having me.
0: Hannah, we're looking forward to hearing about The Fir Tree and your Hakawati's Women of the Arabian Nights. It runs till mid-January, but before that, let us go back to Francesca. Tell us how this idea of doing a play at the National Gallery came about.
2: Well, Boo Productions have had a relationship with the National Gallery for a while now. We have done grottos for them based on paintings and it's been a really exciting uh, relationship to nurture. And they have this theatre space in the middle of their building where normally they have conferences or they record TV shows or things of that nature. And it hasn't been a live performance venue, but they thought, why not? We've got this relationship with this company that does theatre productions and immersive productions. Why not explore that? So that's how that sort of came to pass. And then I was tasked with creating a show, uh, looking into the painting and figuring out who lives there, what are their lives, what's the adventure they're in. Uh, and that was the process, really.
1: So turning to you now, Claire, this is obviously a really innovative project to undertake. So can we hear from you first about the painting itself and how it was chosen? Yes, sure. So we were thinking about what we, what could we do to attract
4: families? And then we started to think about a Christmas experience. And last year we did this and it was a bit of a trial and it was a, diff- a very different version to what we're doing this time. And it was a Santa's Grotto experience. It was Meet Father Christmas. Um, and we did it in a different venue in the gallery. And we decided that we needed to make it obviously tie in with the National Gallery. It couldn't just be a Santa's experience on its own. So we were looking at the artwork in the collection that appeals to families has a little bit more going on in terms of you know a lot of 16th century art is very you know religious and deep and you know it's not sometimes it's not children wouldn't necessarily relate to it but we came across the, the painting of Avocam and saw the, the, the winter scene with skaters near a castle and obviously in that particular painting there is so much going on there's a beautiful frozen lake there's the castle at the back there's all sorts of activities going on in the lake and comings and goings and we kind of zoomed in on these on these two particular children Frederick and Micah and decided that actually how
2: lovely would it be if we um, did this kind of Christmas experience It's a beautiful scene of this iced over lake with a pink castle in the background. And in the foreground, you've got families and people just enjoying the nature around them and something free and glorious, which is just socializing and being able to sort of skate around this incredible scene. And I often look at paintings and I wonder, you know, who lives there? What are their lives? What are their inner worlds? What are they doing? Uh, What are their fears? What are their hopes and their dreams? And so through that, it's really exciting to be able to bring that to life. You can imagine yourself being there. Even this, you know, hundreds of years later, centuries later, we're still out skating and we're still congregating because we're social creatures. We require community. We require that sort of love and companionship of those around us. And that painting sort of encapsulates that beautifully in that visual sense.
0: The National Gallery's never done anything like this before, have they?
2: No, not at all. And really this this
4: was born out of, out of the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic and the, the idea that people were, the gallery was obviously closed for a lot of time. We weren't able to do events um, and we were just thinking creatively about what could we do to engage with a diff- with, uh, with more of our local audience. With the gallery before COVID, 70% of our audience was was international. So we wanted to really engage with our local audiences a lot more and especially families. We realized there's a huge demand for this. And the idea of, of bringing um, kind of more families, a different audience to the gallery who wouldn't normally have come and to introduce art to children in a much more I mean a a much more creative way so for people to come to the gallery and have a really beautiful experience have have the experience of meeting Father Christmas and then taking the opportunity to go into the gallery see the painting itself on the wall take you know have a coffee and a a bite to eat in the gallery as well and just make a kind of an experiential day of it in the gallery that was our thinking behind it.
0: How did the conversation start? Because it is a great idea, I think. You've got to be imaginative in how you attract new audiences.
4: Before coming to the gallery, I was working for Royal Museums Greenwich, and we worked a lot with Boo there, um, doing ex- experiences. And in fact, I've been talking to them about doing a Christmas experience very similar to what we we're doing in the gallery in my in my time there. So obviously, when I came to the gallery and, and this this situation came up, I had Boo in my mind in terms of how, who we could work with to be able to put this on. Um, and they're a very creative um, production agency who do fantastic um, shows and and family audiences and family family
1: activities. So that was why why the, the relationship between Boo and ourselves um, came about. I gather any ticket holder to the show has free access to the gallery before or after the show. And I'm just wondering what the capacity for the show is. Well, the capacity for the
4: show is quite, is, is much larger than it was last year due to the amount of space that we have. So, in the theatre that, that we're using for this performance, it has capacity of over 300 seats. And we're doing four shows per day on the 13 dates that we're doing, because we're doing weekends up until the, the, ch- the children break up for school holidays. So, actually, that's 1200, up to 1200 people a day.
2: We are encouraging people, make a day of it, come look at the painting beforehand if you're on a later slot or afterwards if you're on an earlier slot and really immerse yourself in the world of art and then come and enjoy the painting. And not only that, there's food and glorious offerings within the gallery itself as well.
4: So, yes, we've got a lot of lovely food options at the gallery, food and drink options. We have for the actual p- p- Christmas show, we have a pop-up Christmas cafe, which will be serving sweets and popcorn and drinks and mince pies and all that kind of thing and a very, in a very festive kind of feel. So that will be open on the days of the performance. And as well as that, we have an espresso bar that does lovely coffees and cakes. We have our national cafe, which is a, a delicious selection of really lovely home-cooked lunches. We also have Oka, which is our brand new restaurant to opened in April this year with our partner muriel's kitchen and what they have there is a beautiful fine dining kind of menu offer as well as brunches at the weekends and jazz evenings in the evening and all sorts of different activities that you can do so after you finish the show you've got the opportunity to go into the galleries browse the galleries go and find the painting which will be hanging in, in our galleries as well and then finish off finish off your time having a lovely bite to eat in one
1: of our catering um, outlets so the play- i've seen a little trailer a tantalizing trailer and it looks like, is it a musical or a dance show? What, what is it or a bit of everything?
2: Yeah, it's a musical. So we've created a show where there's music throughout it and these key iconic songs. And we absolutely hope that people are going to be going off singing these songs as they leave the auditorium. And what I've tried within this as well is to just add a little bit of love and love, love life lessons within it as well, just to help us sort of navigate life.
4: Yeah, I mean, what, what was going to be beautiful about the play is that audience will delve into the story of two children, Frederick and Maker, on their journey through the woodlands. They'll meet magical creatures. They're wandering through frosted landscapes, skating on glistening ice rinks. And it's just a lovely story of children and what what they get up to in their day. And, and I think it's very relatable to children today who are obviously still playing in the same way.
1: Well, Hannah, turning to you now, you know, I actually love The Globe because it's obviously got its great big fat production of Henry V going on that's that's being heralded all over the place but alongside it you've got two amazing things so tell us first of all about being writer in residence
3: that started in January this year and um, and it will finish in January next year and I keep saying to everyone I don't know what I'm going to do come February I'm going to feel very bereft to not be there because it's a wonderful institution to be a part of I feel very lucky
1: I absolutely love the kind of things that, that the Globe does at Christmas, especially in the open air, It's so magical. And then you come out and you're where you are on the Thames. It's absolutely amazing. So tell us a bit about The Fir Tree.
3: So The Fir Tree is an adaptation of a Hans Christian Andersen short story. And the idea, I can't claim credit for the brilliant idea. It's uh, Michelle Terry, the artistic director of the Globe's idea. And it, It's not the jolliest of tales. You won't be surprised to know (laughs) by Hans Christian Andersen. So I was a little bit tentative at first, but Michelle gave me the challenge to reimagine it in a way that centres a sort of conversation around conservation. And that really got me very excited. And so, yes, I took the challenge and uh, went ahead and adapted it. It's a really beautiful show with carols in it. And the designer is this genius called sam wild who we call the card bard because he can literally make anything out of cardboard and he's so the whole show is is really sort of sound in terms of its uh, its carbon footprint everything is made from old amazon boxes basically the puppets are beautiful he's made loads of gorgeous videos so people can make their own at home and uh, bring them in for example little birds to populate our forest we're also going to have loads of trees in the yard and people are encouraged to bring a decoration to decorate the tree a decoration that they've made themselves so it's going to be a bit of magic i think
1: who's made the puppets has he made, the, sam, made wild. The sam wild
3: sam wild has made all of them i mean he is a card genius uh, it's incredible the things that he can make from card. He can make literally anything. So it's beautiful. We've got a couple of mice. We've got lots of, we've got squirrels. We've got a very funny rat. All of them made from basically from old boxes. It's the first show that I've ever done where tickets went on sale before I had finished writing it. And I don't recommend that because it did make me feel a bit vomity. <laughs> Because, because it's so much pressure, you know, the idea that people are actually paying money for something that I haven't finished making yet. But to have that level of trust from Michelle and the Globe is just, you know, incredible. And so I feel very lucky.
0: So when you're a writer in residence, do you get told we want you to write three pieces a year and we're going to block out three weeks of the year for your shows? How does it work?
3: I think it's a sort of it depends on the year and, and what they decide to do. So the previous cohort was actually three writers and they wrote one amazing adaptation of Ovid's Metamorphosis. When I was asked to, to be writer in residence, they immediately asked me to adapt Henry VIII, you know, and I got vomity again. I get vomity quite a lot of some of the things the Globe trust me with. But but I took up that challenge and then the fir tree they said, Oh we we're gonna bring that back I was like, delightful, that's brilliant news and then uh, Hacker Wirties, my other play that they're doing um, at Christmas as well, was a pre-pandemic commission. So I've been sort of waiting and hoping and fingers crossing that, that it might find its place because it was written specifically for the Sam Wanamaker. So I'm just, I just feel like the luckiest writer in the world, you know, that, that all those things have come together.
1: That's not exactly Christmassy, is it?
3: I've always been quite surprised about the fact that A Thousand and One Nights is done in this country as a show for kids, because the framing story of Sherazade is really not for children at all. Uh, And uh, so I've always found that quite weird. And I had the great privilege to see Lions and Tigers by Tanika Gupta, the playwright at the uh, Sam Wanamaker studio a few years ago. And I fell in love with the space. And I sort of thought, what would I write? What would I write? And I somehow had one of those light bulb moments as I walked home along the Thames. And thought, yeah, I'd love to write something about Sherazade, but something that's very much for adults and about Arab women reclaiming that narrative and those stories. So if people don't know the the framing device of A Thousand and One Nights, the king has caught his wife in flagrante with um, one of the servants and so kills her and him, and then vows to wreak revenge on all womankind by wedding Bedding and beheading a woman every night, a virgin, and this continues until Sherazade has the courage to step up and say, "I'm going to go next, but I have a plan. I will tell him such amazing stories that wind into themselves, that never end, that he will never want to kill me because he'll want to know what's coming next." And so I thought, okay, but what if Sherazade isn't the brilliant storyteller of fable? What if she's good, but there's a bit of hubris going on, and she's not as good as she thinks? Well all the other women would be really sort of rooting for her to succeed because otherwise they'll be next so so the idea is what what, what do the other women who are waiting in the queue do they start writing stories for her and it effectively becomes sherazade's writers room yeah so that's that's the idea and and the the form represents the content in that i have four other amazing female writers of arab heritage who have written new stories that sit within the play so that's quite
1: exciting too. It's a bit like a sort of Arabian Angela Carter. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah I'll take I'll that I'll <laughs> totally take that I'm a massive fan of Angela Carter yes I'd love that.
0: As a woman of Arab heritage Hannah so when you get given Henry VIII I mean do you I mean they kind of hand you Henry VIII and say reinterpret it or do you say I mean, is there a discussion?
3: Of course. So so the, the conversation around Henry VIII was, we, you know, it's considered to be one of the problem plays. Yeah. And we'd love you to reimagine it centering the female characters. Right. And I was quite nervous about that. But as soon as I read it, I mean, I had read it, but years ago at university, hadn't looked at it since. And I read it and I went, well, actually... He's already done it. As far as I'm concerned, the main character in Henry VIII isn't Henry. It's Catherine of Aragon. Her speeches are the best in all Shakespeare in my opinion. I mean, they are astonishing. I didn't have to do anything to them. It's more about it was more about sort of pruning some of the really political stuff if I'm centering the female characters and giving Anne a little bit more of a voice. And so I felt fairly comfortable with that and you know, I borrowed a bit from Taming of the Shrew, a bit from Pericles to to sort of try and give Anne a bit a bit more ownership and and emotional journey and in fact I had to do quite a lot with Henry too because on the page he's very thin so I sort of took some of a, a bit of Orlando trying to make him the lover you know who's justifying um his his actions because because he's fallen so in love with Anne so when I'm asked to do things ed I'm always really sort of conscious about am I the right person should I be doing this mm. but with Henry, actually, even though my initial reaction was, oh no, I'm not the right person, as soon as I started looking at it and thinking about Catherine as well as the other, a woman who's from Spain, you know, who's who's an outsider, that felt quite interesting. And also it's about a very public, messy divorce. And my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. And so the idea, I inserted Mary Tudor into the play. She's mentioned once in the original and I said how can she not be there so to have this sort of teenage Mary watching her parents public divorce and being horrified by it you know that sort of really spoke to me as well it was it it was such a fantastic challenge and I really I loved I really loved doing it.
0: Have your parents seen it?
3: My mum saw it.
0: <laughs> what did she say?
3: She she loved it, but she loves everything I do.
0: Did she get the Did she get any of the references or not? We do you we, say this we... is partly based on my childhood, Mum?
3: Ed, Ed, we haven't had that conversation, but now she will listen to this podcast, and we will. Well, this is the way. This is
0: because we do Charlotte and I do this whole therapy service. <laughs> but I'm interested, Hannah. What would make you say you were the wrong person if somebody said we want you to reinterpret this? play all this good question what, what, what would make you say no I'm wrong for this
3: well you know just if a story just happens to be a Middle Eastern story it doesn't necessarily mean I'm the right person
0: right so people come and... to you in a, sli- a slightly crude way is what you're. Saying. yeah
3: I, yeah. I think th- yeah sometimes sometimes yeah. just sort of because yeah. because you have Arab heritage yeah. you should be the one interpreting this story but I I'd like to look for a bit more connection and nuance than that yeah. happenstance I wish more people did really fully interrogate, more writers who have lots of opportunities did really fully interrogate the work that they're offered and really consider whether or not they're the right person to do it. Because I think far too many people take on things that could be,
1: the love could be spread a bit more sometimes, I think. Love it. After this incredible year, you could go anywhere. So so what next? Where, where can we find you after this stint at the Globe?
3: I'm not entirely sure. This is the wonder of being a freelancer, Charlotte. I, I don't really know. I'm under commission to the Kiln Theatre. Oh,
1: we love the Kiln, yeah.
3: So I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I've written a big play for them, so Ooh. fingers crossed. I'm under commission to the Royal Shakespeare Company. I've had a play there before. I would love to do another play there. So let's see what they make of that play. And I've got a few other things on the boil, a couple of telly things as well. So we see, we see.
1: Going back to you now, Claire, now you started this whole performance ball rolling at the National Gallery. I mean, there are probably all sorts of ways that a painting can be turned into a, into a play, not just at Christmas. Is, is there any one painting in, in the gallery, Claire, that you think might make for a really good drama of any sort?
4: Oh, my goodness. We have so many paintings that would make for good drama. And the one that's jumping out at me, which is not quite, wouldn't quite suit this family audience that we're doing this year. But the execution of Lady Jane Grey by Paul
0: Delaroche would
1: make for a very good story, I think.
0: Charlotte, which uh, which painting are you going to choose for your well, I
1: do you know, I was, I was thinking about that, Ed. I, I was just thinking about it. having asked the question. I'm thinking, well, that's all very well, but what would I say? <laughs> I'd quite like to, I'd be rather interested to see what you'd make of a Hieronymus Bosch. Mm. painting something you know you could do something really halloweenish next
0: year what about you Ed I would probably do Holbein's The Ambassadors so I could do a political play I'd probably get commissioned <laughs> James Graham
1: oh yes uh, oh, to yes. write it <laughs> That's, and, and what about you Hannah
3: well there is a beautiful portrait of Sherazade. I'm not sure it's, if it's actually in the, National, the- uh, National Gallery but there's a gorgeous portrait of Sherazade. so I'll cheat and just have that one and Do
1: So much to look forward to, and thank you all so much for coming on. Thank
4: you. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having
1: us. Just before we go, there's one other Christmas play we wanted to mention, which is showing at Wilton's Music Hall. Anyone who's never been to Wilton's should go, as it really is like stepping into Dickens's London. Wilton's history dates back to the 1690s. The building has been an alehouse, a Methodist hall, but it's also the most important surviving music hall. Anyway, this time last year, Piers Torday, the talented and award-winning children's author, came on the podcast to talk about The Child in the Snow, the Elizabeth Gaskell ghost story he'd adapted for Wiltons. It sounded fabulous, and I was all set to go and then got struck down by COVID. But I'm pleased to say that Piers has written a new play called The Wind in the, not the Willows, but Wiltons. It's been directed by environmentalist Elizabeth Freeston, and it's a call to action on climate emergency. It's a fun, festive family show that sees the much-loved characters of ratty, mole, badger, and toad tackling climate change, though toads are a little less keen than the others. It opens next week, and just as everything in the fir tree at the Globe is made out of cardboard, the and the Wiltons, it's completely made out of recycled, sustainable materials. So we love the sound of that.
0: Next week, we're going to be talking about the search to find Britain's most beautiful buildings. For the first time ever, the Royal Fine Art Commission Trust is hosting the Building Beauty Awards, which is very exciting. And on the podcast, even more exciting, me I cannot believe this cast list. We've got actually got Norman Foster, the stellar global architect. We've got Stephen Bailey, the design guru, uh, and who is also the chair of the Royal Fine Art Commission Trust. And we've got the judge, Cassia Sinclair. So don't fail to tune in then to find out who are deemed to be the most beautiful buildings in the country.
1: As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com where you'll also find the latest edition of the magazine as well as be able to listen to our sister podcast, House Guest with Carol Annette, talking to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback and we'd also like to hear if there's anything you'd like to hear us profiling or changing. So please send me a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co Thank you very much indeed for listening and see you next week.
0: Goodbye. Take care. Bye.